fault for talking about electricity last night. Thank you, and um, wanted to offer a, a talk today on the heart of the of the Dharma, and um, I'll maybe begin with a, a short reading. Let's have to find it. It's by a, a poet named William Stafford, an American poet. And this was actually the very last poem he ever wrote. Uh, he had a habit of writing a poem early in the morning, and this was the the last. He was dying of cancer, and this was like the third day before his death that he wrote this poem, which is very poignant. It's a very powerful poem. And it's called "The Way That It Is." The way it is. He says, there's a thread you follow, and it goes among the things that change, but it doesn't change. And people wonder about what you're pursuing, and you have to explain about the thread. But it's hard for others to see it. But while you hold on to it, you can't get lost. Tragedies happen, people get hurt or die, and you suffer and you get old, and nothing you can do can stop time's unfolding. Nothing you can do can stop times unfolding, but you don't ever let go of the thread. Nothing you can do can stop times unfolding, but you don't ever let go of the thread. To me, the the thread of the Dharma, the thread of this practice, nothing you can do can stop times unfolding. You never let go of that thread. I feel so um, just so blessed, so much gratefulness that of. Um, this practice and the Buddha encountering or Siddhartha Gautama encountering this fourth heavenly messenger pointing that maybe there is a way. Maybe there is a way. And I'm so grateful for, for this practice of mindfulness. So I'd like to maybe share a bit of, um, continue that story of the Buddha, of Siddhartha Gautama. On the first night, I shared part of the story of him encountering these heavenly messengers and then deciding to leave the palace and to um, 
commit himself to understanding the meaning of life. And so he went on his sojourn, and for a number of years he traveled and studied with a number of different meditation teachers that were um, well regarded in their experience of the practice and teaching of these different practices of meditation. At the time, the most prevalent of practices was concentration meditation, developing absorption, which culminates with deep serenity, unification, one-pointedness of mind and heart and body. And um, Siddhartha was a, was a, a good student, and um, he would study with different teachers, and he would uh, soon master these types of meditative practices of developing samadhi, absorption. And so much so that teachers would sometimes say to him, well, you've learned everything that I have to teach and come and be with me and help teach others. And even though Siddhartha could, with his very developed concentration and absorption, palijana, he was a master of this. He also recognized, even though he could experience profound tranquility, unification, one-pointedness of mind, body, and heart, it still kind of gnawed on him of what is this life and about suffering. He could calm himself down, but which was great. But there was still these deeper probing questions about suffering and, and life. So there came a time in his own journey that he left these practices of deep absorption. And he had heard that there was some sadhus that were practicing self-mortification practices, the punishing of the body, and that this was possibly a way for enlightenment. And so he came with a group of five uh, of these sadhus and began to practice some of these self-mortification practices and eventually came to one particular practice that he uh, deepened and deepened and deepened, and that was the gradual withdrawing of food till eventually he, his diet each day was one grain of rice. And this went on for a long time. And of course, after a long time, a lot of weight is lost. He was getting skeletal. He was losing his primary energy. And he realized that if he stayed much longer with this, and he still had not awakened, that um, he would die. And so he just reflected within his own practice, there's got to be more of a middle way. This punishing of the body, um, he, as far as he could see from his practice, it was going to lead to his death and not to awakening. And so he left this group of these five sadhus. And he came across a very wonderful woman named Sujata, who actually supported him to feed him, to nourish him, to help him to regain his health. After Siddhartha regained some health, he traveled on to a, a place with a big, beautiful tree, and he just took his seat underneath it. And he made type of a, an internal um, commitment 
the commitment of that he was going to stay there. That he had gone to so many different places, learned so many different teachers, teachings, studied with different teachers, and that it was time for him now to take his seat while he was now nourished again, more of a middle path approach, and to sit here and stay here. They've been to so many different places. It's time now to just stay here. And then even further made this commitment. I, I'm going to just stay here until even the skin falls off my body. If I don't wake up, I'm going to stay here. So this real determination. To sit here and to wake up. So the story goes that he uh, was sitting underneath this beautiful tree, overlooking beautiful fields and so forth. And there's something about the story that as he was looking out at the fields, an old, old memory arose within him, one that he had actually completely forgotten. And the memory was of him sitting underneath another tree as a younger boy, on a on a beautiful day, just like it was this particular day, overlooking fields and uh, different areas, and and so he was reminiscing about this as a boy sitting underneath another tree and how beautiful it was, and feeling the oneness of the world. I think some of us, you know, that moment where like you just you kind of like the oneness of the world. It's a beautiful feeling, connected. Paul Simon, the singer-songwriter, sings about it in a kind of a funny song called, ironically, You Think Too Much. But what he says in that song is, have you ever experienced a moment of grace when your brain just took a seat behind your face and everything was just sunny and everything was just funny? Have you ever experienced a moment of grace? It's a beautiful little description, like that moment of grace where you just felt at one with the world. There's no separation. That'd be a nice way to die, feeling at one with the world and the universe. No separation. So he was reminiscing about this, that feeling of connection and interconnection, just as a boy and now here now, so many years later. And then another memory arose that he had completely forgotten. The memory when he was younger, sitting underneath that tree after experiencing the oneness of things, that he looked over on another pasture and there was some farmers and an oxen and a plow. And maybe because his sensitivity was so heightened, when that plow blade went into the earth, even as a young boy, he, he had that sense of almost like hearing some of the worms, some of the beings crying in agony and pain. He had completely forgotten about this memory. But now here it was so many years later, and this juxtaposition of the oneness of the world and the heartbreaking qualities of this world. that They're both here. They cannot be denied. One is the beauty and the heartbreaking 
aspect of this world. And it said that after recalling this memory, he came to his breath in and the breath out and began to steady his mind, developing deeper concentration. And there was a certain point, though, and perhaps being affected by this juxtaposition of the oneness and beauty of the world and the heartbreak of the world, he shifted his, his attention of the meditation. Rather than going completely into absorption, he used his concentrated mind to begin to penetrate the impermanent nature of things. The beginning of the breath and the ending of the breath beginning to penetrate impermanence. That's why we find in the Satipatthana Sutta, in the foundations of mindfulness, the reframe on the bottom of each of these foundations of one meditating, being mindful of the origination and the dissolution. Coming to know and to experience this. You would think such a different little shift wouldn't have been much, but it was everything. Because as you began to focus rather on unification, serenity, tranquility, oneness, he began to penetrate the nature of change and give rise into him a profound and very sobering, like a realization that suffering does really exist. There is heartbreak. It cannot be denied. This became known later as the first noble truth, but it was a realization. This realization into the, the suffering, the, the ch this challenges in life, this birth, this aging, this illness, this death, this complexity of relationship, this physical pain, this, you, you know the list. Stress, uncertainty. So this first realization was this really sobering and deep understanding of the truth of suffering. So he just stayed with that for a while and just absorbed it, very sobering. And then this, this mindfulness which was there began to arise the senses of investigation and curiosity about what is the causes of this. It's a valid question. So he began to penetrate investigation, the causes of this suffering, and what arose within him eventually was this powerful, illuminating insight and understanding about the causes of suffering. And it begins with ignorance or unawareness or not seeing clearly that gives rise associated with craving, misconception, looking outside of oneself, if you will, for happiness through sensual delights or to be someone special or so forth. And it was this, again, this illumination that it's this not knowing, unawareness. In Pali, it's called avijja, 
And avijja means unawareness or ignorance or delusion or not seeing clearly into things. Its opposite is vijja. So when there's an A in front of the word, it's it's the more of the negative unawareness. But vijja is awareness or knowing. And I, I love that there's such an emphasis on this cause of unawareness or not seeing clearly into the nature of things that gives rise to a sense of grasping or aversion, but it's the primary cause is this unawareness. With unawareness, there's a not knowing, and then things begin to stir, and then the, the whole dependent link of origination begins to develop. But it, it's, its primary source is unawareness. Tungpulasero, my old teacher, used to say that the midnight is dark and the full moon, the, the, the new moon is dark, the thickness of the forest is dark, but darkest of all is ignorance. Not seeing clearly into the nature of things. So I'd like to like spend a little time with this because often what's talked about is that craving is the deep cause of suffering. And of course, there is a big element in that. <laughs> but underneath the craving is ignorance, not seeing clearly into what's here. The Sero once um, asked a question of us. It's kind of a funny um, <laughs> analogy now, but he would say, who's worse, someone that knows that they're killing or someone that doesn't know? And and I would say, well, the one that's worse is uh, is killing because they should know better. And the Sero said, the one that's worse is the one that doesn't know they're killing because if they don't know, they'll continue to kill for the longest time. But if you do know, someday you'll realize that maybe um, that's not the right path and you'll stop. And so it's, it's kind of a funny example. But that sense of um, awareness helps us to see what's here. That's why the Cero, he would do this teaching with, with, with our five senses in our mind and there was like a poetic formula, like if you know, if no, actually I'll start with the negative. If you don't know that greed is arising in your eyes, then he'll say ears, then he'll say tongue, then he'll say um, nose and, and, and body and mind. But if you don't know that greed or hatred or ignorance is arising, you are accumulating ignorance. But if you know that greed is arising or hatred is arising in your eyes, ears and so forth, if you know it, you're gaining knowledge. And so that that's kind of a beautiful teaching for me. It's, it's like there's the acknowledgement that there may be at times greed and, and, and hatred and so forth, but if you know it, that's knowledge. But if you don't know, you're accumulating ignorance. This is why he said in this uh, teaching of Paticca Samopada, or the de- dependent origination and it's kind of a teaching of causality. When this happens, that happens. When that happens, this happens. It's causal chain of suffering. And he says that if you know, you can break the cycle. But if you don't know, 
you will go around and around, and that this is dependent origination. If you know, you can begin to break the cycle, but if you don't know, you go around and around. This is why there's so much emphasis on mindfulness. Mindfulness is helping us to wake up, to see more clearly what's actually here. It's actually beautiful. There's an American Zen um, priest and writer, poet, Norman Fisher, and he wrote a Buddhist translation from the, uh, of the Book of Psalms. And traditionally, in a lot of older, traditional, archaic, um, biblical language, there's a lot of strong words like a person is wicked, they're evil, they're bad, they're unrighteous. And what he did was he took out all of those words and he said they were not mindful. They were heedless. They were unaware. Kind of changes things, doesn't it? Kind of changes it. So this emphasis on awareness, mindfulness, the first of the seven factors of awakening. This light is turning on. J.D. uh, referred this morning to a a quote attributed to Viktor Frankl about that between the stimulus and the response there is a space and in that space lies freedom to choose. Like when there's awareness we can begin to respond. If we're unaware we become just uh, part of our own deeply embedded conditioning that is so deeply um, within us. So the Buddha, the awakening Buddha, awakened to this understanding that this causes of this suffering has to do with unawareness, not seeing clearly into the nature of things, and perhaps at time building upon a sense of misconception, the misconception of the belief that this is where happiness can be found. Through, I'll go into this in a little bit, a sensual delights or to be someone special and so forth. I also want to just acknowledge for all of us that that it's human for all of us to want to be happy. It's not wrong. It's human for us to be happy, to to want to be happy. But I think the, the question arises, where is that happiness to be found? Is it inside? Is it outside? I've said this before in talks, but it's it's always been interesting to me. And the word utopia has a Greek origin. And it literally means nowhere. I, I love that because it's kind of like this myth. We're on our quest to find utopia or Shangri-La. But actually in Greek, nowhere means, I mean, utopia means nowhere. But it's interesting if you play with the word, you can also arrange it a little bit different way. And it'll also say now here. So now that, that's a little interesting. So maybe it's not somewhere else. Maybe it's here. Maybe it's here. And J.D. referred to that, you know, the three common elements of suffering is ignorance and greed and hatred. And what would it be like if those are lessened? And I love how that the Buddha said one day, someone asked him, 
about what is the best path to follow. And, and the Buddha didn't say my path, but the Buddha did say, whatever path lessens greed, hatred, and ignorance, it's a good path to follow. Or you can look at it in its opposite domain of whatever path increases our contentment, increases our love, increases our wisdom. It's a, perhaps a good path to follow. Because when you think about and consider the opposite of greed is contentment, and I'll tell you, no money can buy contentment. So it is often said by the wise, contentment is the greatest of wealth. And there's moments when we can taste it, maybe even right now as you breathe in and breathe out. What would it be like in this breath in and out that actually any type of wanting is gone. Just the sense of content in this moment. It doesn't have to be different. What would it be like with a few breaths that there's no hatred, no aversion? Instead, the heart is open. Now here, contentment, open heart. Now here, the clarity, the understanding of suffering and its causes, there's no more ignorance. No more in this moment a wanting or a not wanting. This is a taste of awakening. Right here, not somewhere else. My teacher at Seattle, he used to always say, this is a good meditation to live with and to die with. Breathing in and out, no greed, no hatred and ignorance, or breathing in and out, contentment, love, and wisdom. But I just want to honor again for us as human beings, this yearning and longing for happiness, for peace. But we... It's important to ask ourselves, where is this to be found? And there's times where, due to our misconceptions of things, we can get tricked. Because there are things that make us feel good and we want more. But the trouble with wanting more all the time is that we never completely fully get what it is that we want because it never stays. And so it's, it's actually in some ways kind of a cause of suffering because we can't keep what we want. And actually a good friend of mine who's a meditation teacher, a number of years ago, she was a heroin addict. And um, I, I actually never tried heroin. I, Tried some other things, but not heroin. And I was curious to ask her, like, what was your experience on heroin? You said, Bob, it was the best feeling I've ever had in my life. And all I knew was I just wanted it again and again. I just wanted to live there. But I kept on injecting and injecting, but it wouldn't stay. Hmm. Such a powerful description of this wanting. But it feels so good. And for many of us as human beings, it's a, it's a great pleasure to lose ourselves into pleasure. But it doesn't fully stay. But it's an interesting subject to examine. Where does my mind go when I'm losing myself into pleasure? Where does it go when that pleasure 
ends. Interesting to, to explore that. So the Dharma says that there's no fire hotter than this type of greed. It's like an intoxication I want. And there's no ice colder than hatred. There's no fog thicker than not seeing clearly. So powerful, these these metaphors from nature, but say so much, do we not know the fire of this want and the coldness of, of hatred, aversion, the fog, the confusion, when I'm not clear of what's here. So I'll read to you a quote from, um, actually, Mary Grace spoke about him earlier, this English monk, Achen Amaro. And he has a a beautiful translation of uh, the causes of suffering. He says, this is the noble truth of the cause of suffering. It is craving and a craving that is compelling and intoxicating. And that craving that's compelling and intoxicating causes us to be born into things again and again. Ever seeking delight now here and now there. Namely the craving for sensual delight. The craving to be something or someone and the craving to feel nothing. And so these were realizations of the awakening Buddha sitting underneath this tree that became known as the Bodhi tree, the tree of awakening. These realizations of these causes of suffering, beginning with unawareness, giving rise to greed and to hatred. And the misconceptions of looking outside of ourselves for happiness, for peace. The next realization was this realization that there is a way to get out of this. And that is through the lessening of our ignorance, the lessening of our grasping and our hatred. This was the third realization that if there's a cause, there's a way to lessen that cause, an antidote. Of course, sometimes I often think that the fourth Noble Truth, which is called the Eightfold Path. These are the eightfold steps of how to live our lives. Sometimes I think, oh, maybe the fourth should become the third, and <laughs> the third, the fourth, because the path is the prescription of how we go about lessening the greed and hatred and ignorance through cultivating our virtue, cultivating concentration, the studying of our mind, the cultivation of wisdom. But these are the realizations of the awakening Buddha. The Buddha actually means the awakened one, the awakening. The awakening of these teachings, the awakening of 
of suffering and understanding and a recognition that it is indeed part of this life. Yes, there's the joys of life too, but there's also the heartbreaking qualities. One day we do know it will be otherwise. And the awakening of that this causes to this, primarily unawareness that gives rise to the misconceptions of grasping and aversion. And through understanding this, that there's a way to lessen it. Living a life of virtue, settling the mind, developing our wisdom. These misconceptions are also um, challenging, if you will, for us to work with because they can feel so good. The, the quality for sensual delight, this is this sense of the libidinal, the pleasure that just feels so good. So we can get caught up in all of these things. And we, you know, in some ways, there is these momentary, like, you know, like my friend, a little shot of heroin, ah, I feel good, but then it doesn't last. Or, you know, one click, on, I don't work for Amazon, but like one click on the button, you own it. There's like a little, mm, little pleasure. Judd Brewer Brown, a psychiatrist and researcher, speaks all about the physiology of what happens when you click that button. Little pleasure juices that arise. But it's very addictive can't be satiated. So I don't want to say that all of these things are wrong or bad, but it's all in our relationship to them. This morning there was a question about the ants and killing and like we're in relation, like I, the precepts are a powerful thing, like we're in relationship with, with what, what is our relationship to killing, to stealing, to sex, to our speech and to intoxicants. It's a powerful conversation. What's our wise relationship with these? What's our wise relationship with all these sensual things that we can enjoy? I'm not saying abstinence, but perhaps also the other end is losing ourselves in them and identifying with them and thinking that this is what, you know, I'm happy because of what I own. Of course, we all know someone, maybe including ourselves, that got a lot of stuff, but it still didn't do it. I remember once in this Mindful Space Justice Reduction class, I taught with an engineer that said, you know, when I was growing up, it was it was said that, you know, to be successful, you get educated. So I got educated. And then someone, some said, we become an engineer, that'll be good. Then I became an engineer. Then someone said, get a good job, I got a good job. Then someone said to get a house in Tahoe, I got a house in Tahoe. Then someone said, get a boat while you're in Tahoe and get a boat in Tahoe. And then, I mean, it goes on and on and finally says, I'm here because I don't know who the hell I am. And all of these things, they're, they're just things. What is this life? But it's all in our relationship to the things because I've trusted each of us enjoy the things that we have, but it's the wise relationship. And I love the Thai forest meditation teacher, Achen Cham. He, one time he gave a whole Dharma talk on how much he loved his teacup. And he was a teacher that would often say a lot of attachment leads to a lot of suffering. He also said one time, if you let go a little bit, you'll have a little suffering. 
If you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of you'll have a, a lot less suffering. If you let go completely, you'll have the complete end of suffering. Not so easy to let go. But it's all in our relationship. So he gave this whole Dharma talk on how much did he love his cup. Finally, someone had the courage to raise their hand and say, you know, um, you've been teaching us about attachment and suffering. Now you're talking about how much you love your teacup and I don't know what's going on. And evidently he just kind of laughed and said, yeah, I love my teacup. But then he said, the reason I love my teacup is because I do love it. But I also know that it's, it's broken. But in the meantime, I'm going to use it. And so it's just a little story that I think it's in a relationship to things. What is our wise relationship to the things that we have? Because they are just things. Because when we look at things from the time point of view, what are these things? They're solids, liquids, motion, and temperature. And the physicists will say, you know, they're protons, neutrons, and electrons in a lot of space inside these atoms. It's just things. But it's all in our mind and our relationship. Where is happiness to be found from? Some of us might be longing to have a partner. Then one time you get a partner, then all of a sudden your partner's lying next to you in bed and you still feel alone. They still couldn't do it for you, even though you had this whole idea how they're going to bring you to the divine. Then you start thinking, well, maybe I didn't find the right partner. (laughs) No, I've been a lot of suffering. Where is happiness to be found? I think this is the big question. And is it inside? Is it outside? It's essential delights of the place we can get caught, but it's in our relationship. And also we get caught in wanting to be someone, to be someone special. And particularly if we've been brought up in such an environment that we were made to feel small. Maybe messages that we were not good enough that we can't sing, you can't draw, dance, or we're not smart. And we begin to believe these things, of our own deficiency. This is craving to want to be someone has both its narcissistic, has a narcissistic attitude, and it's filled with inflation and deflation. But all connected to the sense of self, and particularly built upon a sense of insecurity, This is such a deep desire to belong, to be seen. But where where are we looking for that? Is it inside or outside? How many times have we left ourselves looking for recognition to be validated, to be seen? Because we don't know it for ourselves at times. And this is a big work because we've all have deep embedded conditioning and identifications. I've been very blessed in the last 18 months to have uh, um, just about 18 months into being a grandpa. And uh, the first year, our family all lived in the same place together. And now they, they live in San Francisco and uh, we're here in Santa Cruz, but we see them once a week. But it's been just amazing just to be with uh, an infant and a, a young child, my grandson. Yeah, maybe I should show you some pictures. I can show you a little video, right? <laughs> just love that guy so much. Like, he's been really one of my major teachers because, like, we all came like this. Like, 
Silas has no prejudice yet, has no bias, has no type of uh, othering of anyone, of sexual identity, gender identification, political affiliation. He doesn't have any of that. And the powerful thing is we all came in this way. And we get conditioned. And it becomes deeply, deeply embedded. So we get conditioned to believe that we don't amount to anything, so we look outside of ourselves to try to feel validated and whole. So it's powerful to me that the Buddha saw that. The awakening Buddha saw how we could get caught up in our narcissism, in our in our misconceptions. These identifications. So to me, this is some of the most important work that we can do as practitioners is to begin to learn, to become aware of what it is that we have learned so that perhaps in time we can unlearn what it is that we've learned. But this is an involved sitting with ourselves and seeing the stories arising again and again. These deep embedded conditionings. Narratives, stories, identifications, beliefs, so many have been formed through our early ages at a time when we didn't even know that was happening. It's only perhaps if we're lucky enough later we can begin to see and become aware of who it is that we've um, turned into. There's a very haunting song from Popeye the Sailor Man to me that says that I am what I am because that's the way I am. I'm Popeye the Sailor Man. And so with that type of framework, there's no hope for seeing anything different. It's only when the light of awareness comes on and we begin to see who it is that we've become, we have a chance rather than self-referencing, we can begin to develop self-awareness. From the union standpoint, it takes some years to individuate. And if you're lucky enough to see who it is that you've individuated into, perhaps the rest of your time is devoted to unindividuating who it is that you've individuated into. That's kind of a tongue twister. But the sense of identity is powerful for us to investigate. This is the seed of all suffering, all prejudice, all bias, the sense of othering, us and them. And it's interesting, um, having been to South Africa, to the cradle of humankind, where they have, this is some of the earliest places where they've found the, the hominoids, the humans, we all come from there. In the genome, we are 99.99% the same. Yet in that small fraction, we've been killing each other, othering each other, feeling superior, inferior to each other. This craving to be someone. That's why I love in the teachings that was found, and I said the other day in the Metta Sutta, like the, the teachings of humility teachings of contentment, the teachings of the lessening of, of, of um, pride, conceit. These are the sublime teachings. So the craving to be someone begins to diminish as we come to know our own inner Buddha awakening nature. 
When the Buddha said that he experienced the unconditioned, how could he have known that unless he had seen through all of the conditionings, all of the stories, the narratives, the identifications, the beliefs? This is the awakening Buddha's wisdom, seeing through the conditioning. The last place where we get caught is this craving to feel nothing. So there's a craving for sensual delight, the craving to be someone, the craving to feel nothing. This is like the death instinct, annihilation. This is like tuning out, not wanting to be here, just losing myself in whatever it is that I lose myself into so that I don't have to be here. And there is kind of a, a an addictiveness to that. Because why? Because we don't have to feel. We don't have to be here. Another powerful insight where we get lost, lost into whatever it is that we get lost into. The awakening Buddha is beginning to see through these things. This craving to feel nothing, this craving to feel, to lose ourselves in sensual delights, the craving to be someone and seeing through these misconceptions and awakening within his own heart. And that this awakening exists within every one of us, not just in the Buddha, every one of us has a seed of awakening, of possibility. I used to have a very beloved Zen teacher, Bishop Nipu Sayaku. And he was um, in a, not a, a he was in the, the Nargajuna school of Zen. And um, we used to study what's called the Majamika Karika. It's this whole powerful teaching on non-duality. But he, he used to say to me and, and to others, but he would say to me at times, Bob, you are really one of the most stupidest people I've ever met in my entire life. And um, so let me, you know, um, let me just say that... Um, he would say that with a smile on his face and a twinkle in his eyes and his heart. And I would and, and I would ask him, why am I so stupid? And then he would say, in the deepest sincerity, you are already enlightened, but you don't know it. And he was we would have this conversation quite often. It's been many years since I heard him say that because he's now dead. But there's something about how he so deeply believed that awakening was inside me and that I just didn't know. And in rare moments, I can almost believe it now. That the, the jewels of awakening exist within every one of us, not just in some of us, any one of us. So our practice is to sit, to be present, to listen, to allow. This is why, and I'll just end with a, just a, a short few words from a Chilean poet named Pablo Neruda. It's called Keeping Quiet. I've recited this often, and I just love this so much, because to me he offers one of the most beautiful definitions of why we would enter into the silence and to meditate. And 
The poem is about what would happen if the whole world could just stop for 12 seconds. Just stop. Everyone. Just stop. And within this poem, there's these few lines. It goes, if, I was not, if we were not so single-minded about keeping our lives moving and for once could do nothing, perhaps this huge silence might interrupt the sadness of never understanding ourselves and of threatening ourselves with death. Perhaps the earth can teach us when everything seems to be dead in winter and later proves to be alive. So again, if we were not so single-minded about keeping our lives moving and for once could do nothing, perhaps this huge silence might interrupt this sadness of never understanding ourselves and of threatening ourselves with death. Perhaps the earth can teach us when everything seems to be dead in winter and later proves to be alive. And I think what's very powerful for us in retreat is that we have entered into the huge silence to begin to understand ourselves, to begin to make peace, to begin to see through these stories, entering into the huge silence together. Thank you so much for your courage, your heart, your vulnerability, your practice. So thank you very much, and um, just looking around. So some walking practice now, and welcome in this walk to reflect upon what's been shared and honoring your mind, body, heart. Perhaps in certain moments, just aware of the lifting and the moving and the placing. And we'll see you back here at um, five thirty.